Welcome to the August episode of A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. So glad to have you here. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks to folks who are supporting the show on Patreon, which you can find out about at abriefchat.com. Over the years, because of the nature of what I do, both on this show and on the jazz session and on the radio, uh, people have often asked me for my favorites of various things, particularly in music. What's your favorite band? Who's your favorite saxophonist? Those kinds of questions. What's your favorite movie? And I never have an answer to any of those things. It just seems like too massive a question. I can I can never work it down to one. I'll usually give people a little list of things or here's some people I'm listening to at the moment or reading at the moment. But there's one category where I really do have a favorite, and that's in poetry. I do have a favorite poet. And as luck would have it, my favorite poet is still writing poetry. And as even greater luck would have it, he's actually on the line right now. And so it gives me uh, great pleasure and a rare, very rare for me case of nerves <laughs> to, to welcome Albert Goldbarth to a brief chat. Albert, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I thought for a moment you were going to say John Keats and that <laughs> I right. have to disappoint you and your listening audience. Yeah, or completely astound me by presenting him through some spectral means onto the podcast, which would be pretty great in and of itself. Um, so yeah, no no Keats, but we'll we'll make do. Uh, it's it's such a thrill to have you here. I, I'm a, a huge fan of your work. I think I have read um, most of what you've published over the years, and uh it's all just it's been poetry that has always deeply affected me i don't think i've ever made it all the way through one of your books without uh at some point tearing up at a poem and without laughing and um i, I just there's something about your work that speaks to i think who i am as a person and who i would like to be and the kind of observation of the world i would like to do and so i find it very affecting and moving and exciting and uh, i'm always i'm always thrilled when a new book comes out um you've oh, gosh thank i you, you sure <laughs> you don't want to just keep talking about my poetry <laughs> yourself for the next 45 minutes that's right yeah and that's our show folks thanks very much um, I like the way it's going. Yeah, it's really it's off, to, it's off to a great start. I haven't even asked a question yet. Uh, I'll just mention before we dive into the questions that uh, Albert's uh, brand spanking new collection, which is out on Lynx House Press, is called Everybody. Uh, that just came out. If you're, if you're listening to this show when it comes out in uh, the summer of 2022, that book has just come out. And it was preceded by just another absolute gem called Other Worlds, um, which came out last year on University of Pittsburgh Press. And those were preceded by many, many others stretching back for decades. Um, I usually, this is not a question I normally ask uh, people, but I am very curious about the answer to it in your case, um, which is how did you get started writing poetry. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I I wish I could talk about it a little bit. I'm not sure I have anything really informative or even articulate to say about it. I've always been a reader. I mean, my entire life long. I remember books, picture books. My mother read to me when I was uh, a very young child, quite possibly preschool age. And in fact, I've, I've gone out of my way in my own offline way to try to, uh, find and, and recollect copies of some of those books. I remember comic books uh, I read as a kid and series books like The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. So that's always been a, a strong, maybe even dominant part of my life. And I thought to myself early on that I wanted to be a writer. That's probably true for lots of people who turn out to be writers in, in the 
later life and make an entire adult life out of that project. Um, at one time, if if you'd asked me, I would have said I wanted to oh, continue the tradition of Robert Heinlein science fiction stories or, or write the Hardy Boys stories uh, of the future for my generation. But eventually, probably around high school, uh, I started reading poetry. I had a very, very good high school English teacher, Miss Schneiderman, uh, later Mrs. Feldman, um, uh, tall, willowy woman who, as I look back and try to provide a reading of her for my own advanced age now, I'm 74, as you may know, Jason, so I'm, I'm going back to my high school years, I see as uh, a sort of good middle-class Jewish girl who toyed, I think admirably enough, with uh, the the beat scene and the the beat poetry of her era. Uh, she she'd wear black. Her hair was long. Um, she looked like somebody who could have walked out of a a beat club, but then gone home and reported to mom and dad about it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, she was very good at providing her classes with a, a range of poetry that went from Wordsworth through the kind of Ginsburg that would be acceptable in a high school English class of the era. And I don't know that she's the primary reason I turned to poetry, but, um, you know, you're young, that lyric impulse is rising up in you like sap. There are girls to impress and uh, frankly, as I think is probably true for a lot of people who begin, who have a creative urge and and begin exploring it through poetry, truth is, it's easier to start to write poems and to buy a one-ton block of marble and start to chip it away until you have a, a, a fully credible life-size human figure in front of you. And uh, I spent some of my, my high school age years exploring poetry that way, I think probably influenced by both the Wordsworth side and the Ginsburg side. And once I started, I, I never stopped. Now it's it's so deep a part of me, it, it feels like it's another organ in my body. I think at least part of that origin story is true, as you said, for, for many people. And actually, I think it's true for many people who don't continue to go on to write. I think that in high school, a lot of people experiment with, uh, or maybe even earlier, with writing, with writing short stories, with writing poems. And for whatever reason, either, I don't know, and I don't know the reason, maybe it's probably a host of reasons, maybe no one ever reinforces that that's a thing worth doing or uh, you know any other number of reasons they don't they don't continue um it just i think of my own case where i wrote lots of uh you know bad but exploring uh poetry in high school and it was many years before i got back into writing poetry seriously if that means anything um but i wonder if you have any idea what was different about you? Was it just that love of language that you talked about, that love of reading? What what made you stick with it? And not just stick with it, but I mean really make it, you know, it is one of the core elements of how you exist in the world. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it's true. It, it shapes my days and has all of my adult life. Um, I, I don't know if it's a, a flippant comic response or a true one to say 
maybe I didn't have any other real options <laughs> in this life. Um, but I, I, I think you hit at, at something true. The, the love of language has always been a part of me. Uh, and and I think, although some people would call me an extrovert, I, I think there's a strong introspective element to my nature. And uh, I always read, as I said. I was reading long before I attempted to write poetry. Uh, I still own comic books. I was reading when I was 10, 11 years old. And back then, some of them with real text and real verbal density and dexterity, to them it wasn't all just you know muscle bound guys and poorly drawn pictures um so a lot of that probably helped move along the project from an early explosion of hormones and and musicality to something that was going to be a keeper for me you uh, when i asked you about writing the first person you named was a teacher and that's also a role that you filled for many many years um as a, a professor and i wonder if there was i don't know anything that you any any spark or inspiration or memory from the way you were taught and the way it helped to inspire you that helped guide the way you taught other students? Because personally speaking, I, I think teach, the teaching of poetry is one of poetry's greatest enemies, I think, in many, in many cases. And the way many of us experience being taught poetry in school by people who don't particularly like poetry or don't like the poetry they're forced to teach um, is what, certainly in my, the, my case and the case of many people I know, my, my own peers, you know, kind of kept us away from poetry until we, some of us got older and went back to it. And so I wonder how you approach that, that kind of challenging subject of, you know, how to impart a, a love of that subject to other people. Um, well, first I should say, I, I, I agree with you. It's a shame the way poetry, at least traditionally, has been taught in our schools. Um, and it would be nice if there could simply be a test, not only for poetry, but the novel as well, uh, drama, short stories, a little test that's applied to certainly high school English teachers, maybe uh, public school English teachers too. The test would simply consist of the question, do you read this for pleasure in your own private life? And if the answer is no, I don't think that person should be teaching it in the classroom. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing you would agree with me uh, that my gut instinct tells me a lot of people, English teachers, uh, by, by volition, still do not read poetry or serious literature, which of course can still be great fun in their own private lives. They get home, the job is done, and they're like anybody else who's been stocking shelves. And that certainly doesn't do the future of, uh, of America's readers any good. Um, if if, if uh, Ms. Schneiderman or Mrs. Feldman, who was also the editor of the, uh, the uh, was a faculty sponsor, excuse me, of the uh, high school literary magazine that I co-edited, and the high school newspaper that I co-edited, if she influenced my teaching then many decades down the line. Uh, I, I suppose I, I'm going back now to the Wordsworth uh, Ginsburg 
dichotomy and beyond dichotomy the way if one loves poetry one should love both of them and come to know what is respectable and enjoyable in both of them and i think uh whether it's the greatest hallmark of what i've done in the college age classroom or not i've always tried to be open to a student's own voice a student's own vision and open to um the need i would say if you're going to claim that you love poetry to know as much of it as possible throughout the timeline throughout the gender line throughout the race line throughout the national uh line um to know it all which doesn't mean having to love it all uh maybe love is so special you can only love a really really small part of it but to pick what you love out of knowing as close to everything as possible and i suppose not every student enjoys that approach but i've i've come to see that i think the ones who are talented who really love poetry genuinely and deeply understand what i've just said well here here uh yeah i i couldn't agree more with everything that you've just said um you one thing i i really enjoy about your your poems is that you tend to if this is the right term, you tend to break the fourth wall a lot in your poetry and kind of refer refer inside the poem to the fact that we're reading a poem and that the thing that we're, you know, like you refer in a later section of a poem to a thing in an earlier section by the fact that it was in an earlier section, like, you know, using a phrase like in the first section, or you'll uh, you'll refer to the the title of the poem as the the fact of the title of the poem, things like that. They kind of it almost feels like you've written the poem and now you're sitting next to me while I'm reading it. And we're in this kind of interesting dialogue where, cause I know everybody falls into that trap of thinking that all poems that have the word I in them, you know, that it's about the poet. Um, so even if it's just the narrator whose words we're reading and you're sitting next to me, I still, I really like the way it makes us feel almost like collaborators when that, when that happens. And I, I'm just curious about that, that idea of breaking the fourth wall, if that even resonates with you as a thing that you're doing. On the one hand, when you describe it, yes, I, I realize I do it, but I think when I'm actually writing the poem, I'm, I'm never standing outside of it and thinking of it in those terms. I'm involved with the poem and trying to meet the poem's own needs for coming to fruition uh, as, as best as possible i mean i'm not sitting down thinking i think i'll do a poem today in which i break the fourth wall and speak directly to the reader that wouldn't happen but when you describe it i recognize that yes it, it does you know, I, I i think i can recognize it almost less as the author of those poems and more as a fellow reader along with you and and then i i would say jason you're right i see that in his work too Sure. That guy called Goldbar. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I like that, and it 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 even further cements that idea of us as co-conspirators in the reading of these poems, which I which I quite enjoy. The fact I do know that uh, you're talking into a cell phone right now under, uh, you know, 
some of uh, duress in the past to the fact that you even own it and that you don't none, you don't use a computer in the writing of your poems and it says that in the books um but and this is the part of uh your makeup that i find fascinating where that is concerned is that you also you collect uh what are now vintage 50s space toys you are a fan of science fiction you science fiction crops up in your poetry and it almost feels like the did you at some point like give up on that dream of the future or decide that you didn't want to participate or because like the 1950s view of what the world would be like now is uh, largely speaking I think incorrect, unfortunately, but but certainly did include a lot of our lives being made better by technology. And uh, that doesn't seem to be a part of the modern world that you're interested in participating in. And so I'm just I'm just curious about that. What maybe it's not a conflict at all once you'll explain it, but it seems like an interesting one to me. Um, it's an interesting one to me, too. Uh, and I don't know that I can explain it. Uh, you, you ask, I think, if uh, I've given up on the the world of the future as envisioned, say, in the 1950s. Uh, it's, sometimes it feels as if it's given up on me. Um, yeah, I mean, my my sense. Well, first, yeah, you're yes, you're you're right. Uh, for for whoever's listening in, I do collect pretty seriously and with great avidity uh, vintage science fiction toys, spaceships, ray guns. Uh, some robots, that kind of thing, and just images of uh, the future as the 1950s or certainly 1950s popular culture would have seen it. Bubble-helmeted spacemen in jigsaw puzzles uh, on cereal boxes, the bubble bath container in the shape of a 1950s-looking spaceship, little gumball machine charms. Uh, I have thousands of pieces. Um, and for me, I think they bespeak a world of wonder, a world that is not tied down by the shackles of gravity at all, in which you can enter uh, what at the time might even have been an unrealistic but beautiful sort of Cadillac finned spaceship with crazy rotors and antennae on it. Just press a button and whoosh, up into a universe that's waiting to delight you with adventure and mystical experience. I mean, that's what that kind of 1950s science fiction says to me. Uh, unfortunately, you're right. That, that did not become the world you and I live in. Certainly the smart pills we were envisioning that you could just pop, you know, and you wake up the next day and know a foreign language. Yeah, that certainly hasn't happened. Yeah, yeah. or have, you know, some political savvy that keeps you a little centrist. I mean, that's, that, that never came uh, to be. It, it, it's a real shame. So my toys and... uh Everything else I have that's ancillary to those toys, hundreds and hundreds of old pulp magazines. I'm sure you know what those are. Uh, uh, science fiction paperbacks from the 1950s and, and 60s. Um, all of that uh, sort of 
on that sort of indicates a world in which you'd get into your spaceship, uh, often just a bunch of guys and often just a bunch of white guys. I mean, that was the 1950s as well. You zoomed off to another planet, maybe another planet even out of our solar system, maybe even out of our galaxy. You could do that. The technology was there. And then you would land on that planet. The technology was there and you would walk out of your spaceship and be able to breathe the air there or breathe the air inside of your helmet. That technology was there. And two green creatures, bipeds with antennae on their head would come up and start talking to you. And you would take out a little spiral bound notebook and a big pen and start making notes on the experience. And that was the 1950s science fiction experience. For me, the strange combination of amazing stuff that pushed the boundaries in every possible way, but couldn't see anything that was computer driven, really digital. That didn't exist. You know, for me, a computer, uh, when I was 15 years old was the, the, the size of the house you're in at the moment. Uh, and I'm not saying that limitation completely explains the antipathy I have uh, at the moment for uh, joining the rest of you in the online world that's tracking every minute of your lives and turning you all into little hive creatures. But uh, that antipathy is there. And the more people ask me about it, frankly, the more I, I'm determined with uh, my cantankerous refuse Nick self to say, I'm going to live the fullest, richest, happiest life as a human being and even as a writer. And maybe if luck is with me a little bit, still as a published writer without having to incorporate any of that in my life. So coming out of that, I would love to ask you to read a poem from everybody, which again is uh, just out on Link's House Press. And um, this is a poem that's on page 25, and it's called Separate. And if you'd be willing, I'd love to have you read that poem for us. I will read it and um, uh, be kind and let me say this ahead of time. I am a creature of the page. Uh, in my mind, I, I think I've given very good readings, you know, public readings from time to time. I've received standing ovations. I've read at you know, fairly important venues, but I am a creature of the page. And in my mind, uh, I'm writing poems for people who want to read them, uh, read them themselves in the, the, the amphitheater of silence in their heads where I think uh, literature actually blossoms much better for the right reader than it ever can through the limited medium of a human's voice, even the voice of the creator itself. So if I were reading this, you know, during a, a reading of mine at a bookstore at a university, I'd, I'd point out maybe laboriously and awkwardly ahead of time that on the page, you would get to see that this poem consists primarily of four stanzas, that the stanzas are all 14 lines, that it's probably a kind of implicit, very casual homage to the idea of the sonnet, uh, and that things like line breaks and uh, bits of language that are in parenthesis or 
um, sectioned out by dashes on either side are probably clearer on the page than I can make them reading out loud. But having said that, I will read this out loud. Uh, the poem is called Separate or Separate, if you want. And uh, there is uh, an initial epigraph that comes from a source called 50 Greatest Moments of the Space Age. And the epigraph tells us, April 12th, 1961, the Russian Yuri Gagarin became, quote, the first person ever to ride a rocket into space. He was able to parachute out at an altitude of 23,000 feet and floated down from the sky to land in a freshly plowed field, unquote. This couple, I'm going to say age 60, married over 40 years and calloused as thick as pigskin on their palms from half a century of day-long manual farm work, still caress each other at bedtime with the delicacy of care. Is care where caress comes from? We associate with a petal-thin baby skin touch. At night, their heads on their pillows are so close that an eighth-inch static electric spark could bridge their hair, and it sometimes seems a dream might travel back and forth across that tiny flyway so swiftly and frequently we'd lose track of exactly whose subconscious was its origin. And even so, yes, even so, why does she, here you'll have to fill in some great exasperating female illogic, and why, in the name of Jesus Christ and the commissar's ass, they're Russian, these two farmland proles. Oh, why does he add here a lunkhead inanity, some dead and dunderwitted scheme that only a man could conjure up and luster to a sheen? I join you in disappointment. If even they don't always share a common language, and some days none at all, these two who have buried a daughter together out past the potato rows and cursed the council and freed the breech calf stuck in the mama cow and danced in crazy circles and lightning storms together. What hope is there? The free world and the reds will ever chorally sing an anthem of understanding. The Israelis and the Palestinians share a species, a genome, hummus and pita bread, and still would cheerfully toast the deaths of the others with wine in goblets fashioned from the skulls of the others. Or here, insert your own example. 
Democrats, Republicans, etc. So, do we really believe the aliens from Galaxy X minus, maybe methane bodied, chitinous, seven brained, or no brained thinking without thought? are going to speak with us in comedy. Our crime statistics, white on white, black on black, north side gang on south side, aren't encouraging. Still, don't we cherish this sci-fi trope from the Cold War years? The aliens attack Earth with their grim X-minus death rays, and America and Russia now join forces in a perfect and lasting harmony above misapprehension. In the real world, in 1961, our couple walks out into the fields where they're obviously terrified to see a figure wafting down from the sky, then landing thumpingly, then approaching them. A United States saboteur? A drooling monster? So, to ease their fear, Yuri Gagarin shouts, his soon-to-be-famous announcement, I am one of yours, which was true. But it was also true that he was addressing two separate yous. They cling to each other, but think their own thoughts. Thank you very much for reading that. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. I tried. <laughs> I I asked you to read that because I feel like it serves as somewhat of a bridge from one of the things we were talking about, which is this um, somewhat you know nineteen fifties based uh, sci fi conception of what the future would be like, um, and the poem also to me um, illustrates another real hallmark of your work, and if I'm speaking of my own relationship to your work, it is the part of your work that I uh, that affects me the most. And that is the way you write about people in relationship. Um, this poem has that as a, a, a kind of bookend. But um, there are, are if any number of your poems I could have chosen that I think in just in, incredibly uh, intimate and knowing and detail um, explore what it's like to be in relationship with another person and that that could be a romantic relationship or a partner relationship or um, you have written in the last couple of books about um, your relationship uh, with your friend Michael um, and I, I there's just uh, something about the way you write about relationships that I, I just find really strikes at the core of um, how I have come to see them. Uh, and so I just, uh, I'd be, I'd be open to hearing anything you'd like to say about how you approach 
writing about relationships and and why it seems to be a topic that that speaks to you um <laughs> that's a big one yeah it's a massive um, question yeah so <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it is and again i have to rely on saying what i said a little while ago in just a slightly different context i i i'm not somebody who really i i'm, I'm not prepared because i'm simply not uh uh to speak as uh, a critic of my own poems. I mean that in, in, in the sense of a literary critic as opposed to being hard on myself, which I, I hope sometimes I am. You know, I, I'm not a, an anthropologist or archaeologist of my own work. The poems come to me and I try to give voice to them as best as I know how. I, I often don't in fact, I, I almost never, I, I believe, think about them in the kinds of terms you're suggesting. Um, but I can say this, and then maybe it'll lead you into another question. I don't mean off topic now, but uh, another version of this topic we're in the middle of right now. Uh, an earlier book of mine, which you, you may, may not know, uh, has what I think is a wonderful title, Marriage and Other Science Fiction. Yes. Uh, and and in, in a sense, that, that, that whole book could have uh, uh, been here in the, in the bridge part you wanted to create. Uh, the cover illustration is a, a man and a woman uh, floating, uh, maybe they're holding hands, as I remember, I'm not sure, through outer space, wearing spacesuits, uh, they each have a, a, a bubble helmet on them. Uh, and yet the, the book, as the title hopes to suggest, is a book about relationships, at least as much as it is about science fiction. Science fiction may just be uh, the, the overriding trope, the vehicle through which uh, the idea of relationships is being explored. And at least for that book, it seemed to me true that um, standard ideas of what science fiction uh, is like, particularly as we were saying, the science fiction of the 1950s, zooming out into outer space and meeting the, the green-skinned folk, um, uh, is probably true to the way I would say many people, most people, or everybody sometimes feels about a relationship they are in, that you can love somebody deeply, truly. I think I love my wife, and I think she loves me back in, in wonderful ways. Uh, I mean, you may know we don't have kids. We just enjoy one another's company. Uh, we still have lots of fun together, but there is always still that feeling, and it's true that the other person is an alien in some ways, you know, that other person can talk to you about his or her dreams. You'll never actually have those dreams electrochemically taking place in your head. Uh, there will always be little changes that take place in a person's personality, needs, goals that move that person away from who he or she was when the couple first met, that it, it doesn't discredit the love of a relationship to be able to say in science fiction terms, 
I'm married to an alien. <laughs> <laughs> and that person is married to one as well. And so I, 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 I think the book tries to be true to that, not using the idea of alien uh, as, as a way of uh, discrediting relationship or, or diminishing the love that can exist, but simply pointing out the fact, yeah, that's what we are to one another. Um, and and w- w- with a little luck in a good relationship, you can get out your pocket-sized spiral-bound notebook and pencil and start to establish a conversation that's true and, and abiding on both sides. Well, let me ask you one final question as we as we draw to the end of our conversation here. Um, that I guess is maybe uh, this may fall into the same category as other questions I've I've asked, where I am asking you to to look at your work in a in a way that you're you're not comfortable doing, but. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, uh, while you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, the poem Mingle that's in Everybody, where in part of the poem, uh, the narrator is sitting at uh, an, a wooden table and there are initials carved in the wood. And the narrator is, talks to the bartender who, because of some specialized knowledge she has, um, is able to say that one set of these initials was carved into the what is now a tabletop uh, when the tree was still alive, and the narrator somewhat cynically, you know, suggests that the, certainly these people are no longer together. And and again, she happens to have some specialized knowledge and says, "Well, actually, they celebrated their 40th anniversary right here in this bar." And uh, that poem, and then there's a poem at the very end of the book um, that is called uh, i thought i would have this right in my brain is it sweet or small sweet or something close small sweet um that has uh a a kind of breakup story in the beginning not a kind of one an actual one in the beginning that then has a reunion bit later on in the story and it's not it's not a rose-colored glasses kind of reunion but it is one and um those things to me, and I, those are two poems that I, I just I find incredibly moving in this book, they they can just carry a lot of hope with them. And I'm not necessarily the biggest supporter of hope. I, I, I don't know. I think sometimes it gets in the way of doing the actual work of making the things better as opposed to just hoping that they will become that way. But I, I do feel like there's a kind of hopefulness that infuses a lot of your work or maybe even just your conception of the world and maybe that even ties back to the to the 50s even though and that that sci-fi conception even though it didn't play out that way uh, do you feel like like hope is a thing that is quite present in the way you look at the world or does that not feel true to you uh if you ask emily dickinson of course she'd say hope is the thing with feathers <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> A shame she's not here to be interviewed. But first, let me say your your readings of my poems, so far as I know them, are absolutely spot on, uh, and and I just uh, deeply appreciate them. You are obviously one of the the right readers that I've been writing for, whether I've known it or not, all of my life. And and to to make that clear, maybe to people who could be listening to this but don't know my work, uh, you've just been referring to a poem that is ah, a small suite, I think 14 pages, uh, divided up into a number of small 
subsections. And uh, even good readers and lovers of poetry uh, are not always able to stick with a poem of mine that's that long, that is that fragmented in where it intends to go and come up with readings as uh, cohesive and appreciative as as yours. So I just want to say thanks for that. which, of course, is a way of not answering your, 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 your question. <laughs> yeah. This ain't I, my I, first I, rodeo, kid. I was noticing that the, <laughs> the entire time. But, but, but thank you for the kind words anyway. <laughs> um, and um, I have a friend uh, who has four children, uh, the youngest, uh, well, one's still in high school. One uh, is just getting ready to graduate. And I, you know, he's my friend, and and I know these kids. I've talked to them off and on. I I, I like them. They're very smart. My friend's smart. He's very aesthetically uh, driven. Uh, they they have real conversations. From the time they were six, seven years old, these kids sitting around the dinner table, they'd have grown up conversations, not in an off-putting way, kind of way that a, a Saturday Night Live skit might make fun of, uh, but just truly interesting, rich conversations. So that's the kind of people they are. And when I've talked to him about his kids lately, how are they doing? How are they coming along? Uh, he says, as I'm guessing maybe friends of yours would say about their children too, that they live in such a different and darker world than I grew up in politics. You know, they're aware of what goes on species extinction. They're aware of what's happening daily news, of course, shootings in schools, um, ecology, uh, Republican, Democrat sniping. I mean, all of that is a part of their world in a way that newspaper headlines were not necessarily a part of mine. I mean, the Internet didn't exist. You know, I, I heard the evening news. I heard my parents and their friends in conversation in the other room. I took a look at the newspaper. That was it. But my French children have access to, in terms of just ultimate emotional downers, is extraordinary. Uh, and I don't know what it will mean for the future. And I don't know that it's a bad thing completely that these children are realistic about what life is like and what human beings are capable of. But it's sometimes horrifying for me to try to see the world through their eyes. They're not sure they have, or the planet has, or this country has a future. And of course, that Albert Goldbarth, who existed in the 1950s, he knew there was a future, and he knew it was going to be glorious. He was wrong, but <laughs> it created, obviously, some real part of his sensibility. And if there aren't smart pills, and what a shame that there aren't. And if you and I can't leave this interview and then strap on our personal jet packs and just zoom <laughs> through the air... Yeah, making sure our asses are not going to be burned by the exhaust. Uh, th- that's a real shame. But some of that uh, benevolence and optimism, and some people might 
more cynically say, being blind to what the world is like and what human beings are capable of. Some of that probably, I'm trying to psychoanalyze myself now. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just talking out of my ass. But I'm, I'm guessing some of that probably did affect my sense that relationships certainly can be hopeful and at their best should be hopeful if they're going to continue to exist. So again, a little bridge maybe between science fiction sensibility of the 1950s as a wide-eyed teenager might enter it and the sense of how even adult relationships can work themselves out with the, the, the residue of that open-eyed optimism still clinging to them. My guest here in uh, the less uh, the less glorious than hoped for 21st century is Albert Goldbarth. His latest book is called Everybody, and it's on Lynx House Press, and you should get yourself a copy. And then once you read this one, just... Uh, keep getting copies of all the others because they're they're just uniformly wonderful in my opinion albert it's been such a, a joy and a, a thrill to get a chance to to talk with you i thank you so much for taking the time to do it a real pleasure jason a real pleasure to see how uh, the guy who wrote me that first letter so long ago has come along so well in life 